Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over one million times worldwide and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage, coming to you from Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. This is episode 277 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in this week's episode, we talk about shakedown hikes. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now the intent of the shakedown hike is to try out new gear and new processes prior to a trip so that you can iron out any bugs, familiarise yourself with any new systems and balance your pack so it's comfortable. It also allows you to assess your fitness and train similar or worse than what you've planned. But how many of us ever do them, and should we really bother? Now in regard to gear and hiking, I'm going to generalise here and group hikers into three main categories. Those who rarely ever changed the gear, and that was us for many years. We pretty much stayed with what we had, used what we had, and didn't look if there were better options on trail. And that's probably where I lean most. Unless it's falling apart, (laughs) I still use it. Then at the other extreme, there are those that constantly update and change their gear, and they can fall into the category of gear freak. Oh, that would be you, Tim. It it is definitely (laughs) me. These early adopter hikers are constantly frequenting outdoor stores and scanning the internet for the next new thing. And as Jill said, that's definitely me. But I think for most hikers, they fall somewhere in between. You know, they'll they'll have their old favourite piece of gear they'll always stay with, but in other cases, they might change over footwear as an example uh, on a regular basis. Well, I guess you have to because it wears out. It does. (laughs) But for a lot of people, they'll often stay with the same model over and over again and not try anything new. I think that's me too. (laughs) Now, as mentioned, while I tend to fall into the gear freak category, I do have traits out of each of these three options, if you like. And in addition, I'm always assessing my gear that I carry to see if there are options to reduce my pack weight. And uh, that was originally with the intent of becoming an ultralight hiker. But even so, going through and assessing what you have, whether it's to reduce weight or decide if you need it or decide if something is a better option for you, is a good, good habit to have. So for us, our first formal shakedown hike was in regard to our late 2016 14-day hike on the Larapinta Trail. And I must admit, I had expectations prior to this trip on how things would work out. And given that we'd done a major rekit prior to this trip, we wanted to see how things would work and whether we'd made the right choices. So in preparation for this trip, we'd both purchased a new pack. We'd gotten a brand new tent because ours was quite a few years old. We'd both gotten new sleeping bags. The stove and camera gear were also new to us. And There were a lot of other little things that sort of fell into that category as well. So even though we were only going for a 15-kilometre walk-in, an overnight, and then a 15-kilometre walk-out, 
we went through and carried four days worth of food and the, and the gear that we'd use for approximately a four-day sort of uh, run because on the Larapenta Trail, we had three food drops. So we weren't carrying 14 days worth of food, which would have been a bit heady, but we did manage to sort of get away with, at worst, four days worth of food. So this trip gave us a good indication of what things will be like. And here, from our perspective, is what we learnt. Partly, one of the reasons we'd chosen the packs we did, that we'd gone onto the Larapenta Trail website, and they recommended the use of a 70 to 80 litre pack at that stage. Now, I don't know if they still do, but in my case, I ended up with a 73 litre pack, which ended up being only about two thirds full. Yeah, so I think that was the biggest learning for me in terms of what we actually needed in capacity and, and you know, some of the guidance that, that was being given at the time. And I think, you know, the, the recommendations when buying a pack is to leave the pack until last, get everything else you need and then work out what size pack you need to buy to fit it all in. We tend to do it the other way around though. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. And, uh, and, and in all honesty, the most common pack that I see on just about any trail that I do is a 65-litre pack. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the brand is, there's, there's a number of brands, but they're all roughly around about that same capacity. One of the problems that we tend to have is that we will fill our pack whatever size it is. So if you find you've got, you've got empty space in your pack, you tend to look at things that you can carry. So additional clothing, more luxuries, and that's fine if you're willing to carry it. But again, it, there needs to be some conscious thought about why you are carrying this gear. Well, it's a balance between the volume of the pack and the weight of the pack. Yeah, yeah. And it might be that the 65-litre pack is fine bulk-wise and you're carrying very little weight. But typically that you find that the more bulk you carry, the more <laughs> weight you can carry as well. So the outcome for me from this hike is I swapped to a 51-litre pack at that stage, which saved both on bulk and weight and also increased the comfort of the The next thing we had to play with was our, a new tent. Now, we'd already set up our tent in our lounge room. We obviously didn't drive the pegs into the floor, <laughs> uh, but we did actually set it up so... When we tested it out a week or so later in the field, we'd actually gotten it out of its pack, we'd played with it, we'd looked at where all the bits were and how it needed to be set up. And that's really what you should do for any new tent. You don't want to be setting up your tent for the first time eight hours into a, a three-week trip and you've never set this tent up before. You know, it's lovely if the weather conditions are perfect, but, you know, if the, the conditions are bad, it's freezing cold, it's pouring with rain, you want to get your tent set up quickly and be able to get inside it uh, with minimal fuss. The other advantage, apart from setting that tent up, it was, and this is more by accident than anything else, is we had a sunny day, there was rain forecast, we ended up with what amounted to a fairly decent storm <laughs> with, with heavy rain for 90 minutes. So we'd actually got to our campsite, we'd set up a tent just as the rain was about to start, sat inside our tent, and it rained pretty heavily for an hour and a half. And the wind was amazing. Yeah, and the tent held up really well, so it was a really good indication that it would work. I've tried brand new tents in similar sorts of conditions when you've had 30 kilometre an hour winds, and that's always a challenge setting up a tent, even if you've done it before at home, uh, setting it up in the field with strong winds certainly impacts or increases the complexity of what you need to do. Well, that just reminds me of when I was camping as a teenager with the family and 
we had incredibly strong winds and it was a, a car camping tent and we just couldn't get this tent up and in the end we gave up and went into a motel. <laughs> now onto a sleeping bag. The sleeping bag I had at that stage was a minus four sleeping bag and that's a men's comfort level. Uh, and for me, that was overkill. And in all honesty, it ended up being overkill on the Larapenda Trail. But the bag I had at that stage, you could fully unzip and turn it into a, a quilt. And that's what I ended up doing on the trip. And my sleeping bag, uh, everybody knows I'm a cold sleeper. Uh, and mine was super, super, super warm. Uh, so it was a minus 11 degrees sleeping bag. Uh, that's with the men's comfort level. And it was perfect for me. So again, in my case, I'm a warm sleeper. Jules a cold sleeper. Uh, and typically females do feel the cold more so than men. It's just a physiological thing. And if uh, Tim gets a little bit cool, he just comes a bit closer. <laughs> <laughs> it works well. We'd gone through and changed from a methylated spirit stove, a liquid fuel stove. I'm glad that we did that. Uh, yeah. yeah, through to a, a canister stove. And that made things so much easier. It really did. As much as the, uh, uh, I, I don't mind the liquid fuel stoves. And in all honesty, they probably are a cheaper option to use as well. For us, we just boil water more, though, more so than anything else. So we want something that's going to boil water quickly and without too much fuss. And also is suitable for use when it's a total fire ban, where liquid fuel stoves are often banned. Uh, quite often the canister stoves are okay to use. So that was a big, big bonus for us there as well. I'd gone through and purchased a new camera, a compact camera, because previously I'd been taking my SLR camera. And while the SLR was a wonderful camera, if I had have taken the bag, the camera and all the lenses, uh, the full kit was around about two kilos. Yeah, and I think there were times when we would carry an SLR each, which, you know, was clearly overkill. So we didn't do that on Lara Pinder or on this, on this shakedown hike. We did get really good photos with the camera. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's right. Sometimes you think, okay, it's a slight trade-off and I think it's worth it not to carry that sort of weight. The other thing we decided on that system as well is we looked at coffee options and we decided to test out some coffee bags. Being a bit of a coffee snob, uh, there, there was a pretty high benchmark to meet and uh, the coffee bags just didn't, didn't cut the mustard. No, and, and, and as such, we opted to say, okay, we're not going to worry about coffee on the Larapinda Trail. We left that out. You know, we, we ended up taking herbal tea, which is, you know, basically pour water in, that's it. There's no milk, there's no thought about it. Uh, it tastes the same as it does at home. So uh, it was an easier option for us. You do have to go off coffee a few days before if you opt to not take any with you, um, because the last thing you want is to get a coffee withdrawal headache. Um, a day or two into your hike. Yeah, and for me, I tend to find it's about a day and a half after I've given up coffee that I'll develop a headache. And it's not a bad headache, but it's just a low-level headache that lasts for about a day. So I'd prefer not to have that impact on my hike. Some of the other things we learned is we were playing with different types of meals for our trip. And again, all the meals that we took with us were really lovely. Uh, we did, however, discover that the hiking dinners with lamb while tasting great, weren't necessarily worth the after effects uh, when sharing a tent. <laughs> yeah, they weren't they they weren't sharing friendly, were they? No. <laughs> Even when both of us ate it, it was not good. <laughs> so again, if you're trying new food on a hike, 
don't take a batch of food you've never eaten before on a trip because there's two risks. One, it might disagree with you. Two, you may not like it. <laughs> That's and, right. And if you've got a you've got a week's worth of food and you hate it, uh, <laughs> you're, you're going to be pretty sad by the end of the week. Absolutely, so, or thin, <laughs> or thin. Yeah, yeah. So, as I said, it's always worthwhile testing the meals out beforehand. Everybody has different tastes, and certainly we recommend the meals that we like, but that's based on our tastes. So you need to be able to have a play, see what you like, and see what yeah, what you come up with. In my endeavour to become an ultralight hiker, I decided to see if I could get away with using a wide tent peg as a uh, a, a, a trowel for, for to- digging cat holes for going to the toilet. <laughs> now, in the case of where we were camping in the Australian Alps, we just had to dig through grass. And I thought, oh, this will be pretty easy, but it's grass with a very decent sort of root system on it. Uh, <laughs> and I gave up very – I did eventually dig a hole, but it took a long time. After that trip, we ended up going back to a trowel uh, and continue to use a trowel these days. It sounds like a great idea, but, you know, the soil had to be right and you had to have enough time. And when that storm was coming in, that just made it a little bit difficult, didn't it? Yeah, and, and, and we've gotten into the habit of digging in cat holes. When we, we set the tent up, uh, we, we make dinner and we dig a cat hole. Uh, we dig it before we need it. The last thing you want to do is have to dig a, dig a toilet hole when you're in your desperate. So we thought, okay, well, you know, the Larapinta Trail is not going to be the same. And in some respects it was worse because the Larapinta Trail is pretty much rock with a bit of soil mm-hmm. rather than soil with a bit of rock. So, um, yeah, you, you were not going to be able to dig into Your tent peg wouldn't have uh, no. stood the, the, the battle, I don't think. It, well, it may have done, but you know, it would have been pretty harsh on your hands, this, this thin piece of metal. So we ended up going back to the plastic-based trowel. And then in the case of the ones we used, it's made of a material called Lexum, uh, which is a not a particularly common material these days, but it's extremely robust. They last for years. They're fairly lightweight, uh, and they're comfortable to use, more importantly. So again, all these little things that just added up. One thing I'd also discovered was that having worked outside for most of my life, I discovered I didn't need as much layering to cope with minus two as I originally thought. So this resulted in me jettisoning a number of pieces of clothing. And we came across people on the trail when we were doing the Larapinta trail where they had a change of clothes for every day. Now, <laughs> that's fine. If that's what you want to do and you're if willing to carry that's what you carry it, want to carry. <laughs> uh, that's not a problem. Yeah. But it does add bulk and weight, and that's where you, you know, if you if you're going to start doing that, that's when you really do need a, a sixty five liter pack to cope with. That. Yeah. So so I had everything from a, you know, just one off, but many more layers than Tim, singlet, a t shirt, a long sleeve top, a jacket, a rain jacket, um, and I think I even had another one in spare, uh, just in case. And, yeah, we, we'd, we'd come fairly prepared for the Larapinta trail trip. We expected potentially down to minus four and up to sort of 30 degrees. We actually ended up with 32 degrees as a maximum and zero degrees. Uh, and that's even on the same day we ended up with that. So mm-hmm. uh, because we're in the uh, arid regions of central Australia, it's not unusual to have very, very cold nights and very hot days. So basically just get used to the fact you're going to smell on a trip and even if you put brand new gear on, I find on long distance hikes, within three hours of putting on my brand new washed gear, 
uh, because I've stopped somewhere, it smells anyway. So you know, it's it's the sort of thing you're only going to smell smell like roses for a very short period. The other thing it's looking at is how you pack, and this is the, the system for packing, uh, and this will make hiking much easier. The more you practice your system, the easier it becomes. Now, there is no right and wrong way to pack your pack, with the possible exception, I'd say, is you wouldn't want to pack all your light stuff on the bottom and the heavy stuff on top. That will throw your balance off. But where you place things within your pack is really up to you. But in my case, I've been packing exactly the same way for the last eight years. Everything goes in exactly the same spot on every trip that I do. Uh, and as a result, even if it's pitch black and my torch has failed, I know where things are. They all sit in give or take roughly the same spot. So if I know that I'm looking for my sleeping bag, that's down the bottom of my pack. My tent always lives in the stretch pocket on the outside of the pack. The excess food lives down the bottom of the pack. Uh, with The only food being up the top is what I'm eating on the day. So as I said, I know where everything is. So it's a place for everything and everything is place. Develop a system that works for you and can continue on with it. You know, Make changes as you need to. But in my case... Nothing has really changed in eight years with how my gear goes into and comes out of my pack. Yeah, and I'm the same. Um, my system is a little bit different. Um, probably the the main difference is my food is in the middle of the pack, and um, you know that just works works for me and uh, works for uh, the packs that I use. But I think the other thing is once you do develop your own system. It also helps you work out if something is missing as well. So if you do it in the same order, uh, in the same sequence, it, it actually jogs your memory around, oh, you know, this layer should be this and where is it? And that brings us on to the next logical segue of develop your own personal packing list. Now, we've provided packing lists for people on our website and their main aim is to be used as a guide so we do actually provide what we carry, uh, but we've also provided generic packing lists. So when we talk about the sleep system, it's sleeping bag liner, sleeping pad and sleeping bag, but which models you choose is really going to be up to you. That's right. So as you mentioned, it's it's a good way of making sure you've got everything. And the, the big stuff is often pretty easy. You know, If you haven't got your sleeping bag, you tend to notice it. If you haven't got your tent you tend to notice it. And the you bulky things. And you certainly notice if you haven't got your pack. Um, <laughs> it's a bit hard to carry everything in your arms, isn't it? <laughs> that would be, be a good trick. But having said that, though, the big stuff is easy. It's the little stuff. So in my case, I tend to change over my tent pegs based on where I'm going. So I'll choose tent pegs that are suitable for the, the, the soil types and the strength of the winds I'm going into. That might mean that the pegs that typically live with my tent get swapped out for some longer pegs or some grippier pegs or pegs that cope with snow or pegs that cope with sand, depending on what conditions I'm going into. Yeah, and I usually carry the tent poles and the tent pegs. And one of the things I have to do, I carry the tent pegs inside the tent pole bag. One of the things I have to do is make sure that we do have the right pegs for the conditions we're going into and not assume that we'll just use the, the standard ones. 
So, yeah, it's it's one of those sort of things. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. If you think, oh, yeah, I've got everything or everything's in this container, I put it in there last time. Open the container <laughs> and count them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it may be that, you know, in my case, I can get away with most tents that we own and we do own multiple tents. You know, one peg each corner, one peg on each of the vestibules, so that's six, and maybe uh, one additional, so maybe seven or eight pegs. But if it's an extremely windy condition, I might end up using 10 pegs and not having those three remaining pegs could have a major impact on the hike we're doing. So again, have the packing list, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, or in my case it is, but I also print it out as well uh, so we can sit there and go through things. And when I get things out for a hike, I go through and uh, put them in order that they go into the pack. So the pack's the first thing then the pack liner, uh, then I look at my sleeping bag, then I look at my uh, sleeping mat, and they all go through and get lined up in the order they're going to go into the pack, uh, and that way it's easy for me to keep track of them. So whatever system works for you, develop a system that that is is constant that you do each time. Yeah, and one of the things I do is I collect smaller things together and and put them in a, a little pack as well just so that um, – Again, you're not searching around for tiny things floating around in your pack. Okay, so just some final thoughts on shakedown hikes. I mean, it really depends on whether they, you consider them essential or not. If you're going camping or hiking you know, once a month and everything goes in one spot and you take it out and you clean it and you put it there ready to go, I would still check it anyway to make sure you've got it when you go. But you may not have to do a shakedown hike in that sort of situation. Maybe it's been 12 months since you've last been. You grab your tent out of its where it's being stored, you put it into your pack and off you go, and then you get out on site and discover the mice or the cockroaches or something's been in there and eating it and it's full of holes and it's not waterproof anymore. So it's always worthwhile pulling it out of the uh, its pack, folding it out, having a look at it. And again, if it's been a while, set it up, even if it's in your backyard and even if you're familiar with it. Or the lounge room. Or the lounge room, yeah. The first time you set up a brand new tent or a brand new piece of gear, and again, buying a new pack. You don't want to be tying at a brand new pack, having never used it before, on a three-week-long trip. You really do want to have used it before you actually uh, go on that trip. Just to say, well, okay, if I pack this way, it sits a bit different or it's a bit more comfortable or the straps need to be a bit tighter here or the the, the back adjustment needs to be tightened up or loosened. Uh, and that's the sort of thing you can sort of sort out on a shakedown hike. The other thing I'd suggest, doing, the other reason I'd suggest doing a shakedown hike for is you're going into a different sort of environment than you're used to. Now, in our case, we couldn't really simulate the Larapenta Trail. Yes, we could simulate the cold temperatures at night uh, or, and the hot temperatures at day, but we couldn't but do not it. At the same not, time. not at the same time. <laughs> uh, and it was a very different sort of trail. I remember reading an article a number of years ago on the Larapenta Trail and it was uh, talking about where all the pointy rocks go to learn to be pointier. Um, <laughs> that's pretty typical on the Larapenta Trail, lots of pointy rocks. I think it's a matter of trying to simulate as best you can your hike so if you've never been on a long-distance hike before, 
and the longest you've walked, as say as an example, is five kilometres in a day, and you plan on doing 12 kilometres a day on a trail like Larapinta, it's worthwhile doing a multi-day hike where you do uh, that sort of distance. So on the hike we often use, 15 kilometres in, 15 kilometres out, so it's multiple days of distance. And you you might even stretch that to three days where you do two nights and three days, and that'll give you a really good indication of what any potential issues are. My final comment would be that Regardless of your experience level or lack of experience, I think shakedown hikes really are worth it. How often you do them and when you do them will be dictated by how familiar you are with your gear and how often you're using your gear. And how often you change your gear. And how often you change your gear as well. So uh, as I said, you know the big stuff, definitely you do want to do a shakedown hike. You know, if you change a spoon not a disaster if it, does, <laughs> if it doesn't quite feel as comfortable as you'd like it. Uh, uh, if you have a pack full of lamb meals, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the food is definitely one worth testing out as well. Now, you don't have to go hiking for that one. Uh, but, you know, for us, we've gone through and tested a lot of the meals on the market. Uh, and we did it at home in a lot of cases, but also on trail. Uh, and you get a good indication of what things taste like and what you prefer. And the food, though, does taste different, I think, when you're tired, you're cold, um, or maybe even if you're hot. So, you know, if it is brand new and you're not so sure about the food, maybe test out some food too. Okay, that's all for our episode on Shakedown Hikes. We hope you've enjoyed. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.